Wanderings Back in the House, Ron Rapitalo, and I have the wonderful Tina Tang, who is someone who's gone through a number of career changes and today is a strength training coach who focuses on women over 40 and she happens to teach classes at the fitness studio where I've been working out for over four years, certainly pre-pandemic, and I've been a full-time member um, for the last two and a half at Ironbound Performance Athletics in downtown Jersey City. I thought Tina's story and her lessons would be really valuable to the Ron Rings audience. She's a multi-potentiate, so it's really psyched for y'all to learn from her. So check this out. It's dope. going on folks it is Rhonda rings and i am really excited to have my friend my fitness coach at ironbound performance athletics tina tang on the mic who also does her own big social media presence and i've been waiting for this opportunity tina to chop it up with you how are you doing today I'm doing great. Actually, what everyone doesn't know is that you just finished doing a mock powerlifting meet. So we're both coming from that. And that was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, I can't wait for the Cheesecake Factory order I have coming with steak. So thank you, Tina, for making me really ravenous and hungry (laughs) and making sure I don't fit my clothes over (laughs) over some time. Well, Tina, I'm really excited to introduce you to the Rondering's audience. And in Rondering style, I'd love you to start with what is your story? Well, um, similar to you, I'm probably a lot of people in America. I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigrant's kid, and whose parents also wanted her to take a stable job like them. So both of my parents work for the federal government, or actually worked for the federal government for their entire careers. But instead of doing what they did, I ended up going to work at Goldman Sachs as my first job coming out of college as an equities trader, and from there I ended up opening up my own jewelry stores in Greenwich Village. And now I am a strength coach, primarily working with women over 40. So it's a very unpredictable path for a career that even I would never have guessed that I would be doing that if you asked me coming out of college. What's your career going to be like? Wow, Tina, you have been an entrepreneur working at one of the premier investment banks and now... um, solopreneuring in a different way as a as a strength coach for women over 40. So let's go back in time when birth to Goldman Sachs, well, like, what was what's the story in between there about you? What led you to Goldman? Because I know a little bit, I saw that you you went to Stuyvesant. I think we probably have a very similar path. And I think a lot of people who um, whose parents came from another country to come here for their kids is like worked hard in school, you know, that's all I knew is like, that's the, what's been ingrained in our parents as your key for something stable and successful in life is a good education. So mm. from high school, the, the school I went to because the neighborhood I grew up in, my parents picked specifically because of the school system. So everyone mm. in, in my school were like, they were gunning for Ivy Leagues and like top, whatever the top, anything you see in US News and World Report, they, they know that list by heart. Yes, <laughs> so those yes. are the schools everyone's going through. And so that, you know, I kind of just follow along the path because it, it felt like, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. And when I graduated from college in that decade, the hottest jobs, I don't know if you remember a book called Liar's Poker that written by yes. Michael Lewis, that I think had just come out while I was in college. So the mm. hottest jobs back then were working on Wall Street. 
or it was either consulting or investment banking. And I didn't know any difference. So that's why I ended up applying for jobs at investment banks. And that's why my first full-time job was at Goldman Sachs uh, in their equities department, equities trading. Well, actually, no, it started off as they, what they call financial analysts. I think a lot of firms did that back then. They hire uh-huh. a college grad for two years. And in those two years, you're kind of competing or being auditioned for whether they hire you mm-hmm. for a longer, yep. a longer term. And so I passed the audition and that's, that's where my first job was. It's so funny, the timing of these recordings, Tina, because my best friend who I'm recording next was a Goldman Sachs undergraduate intern. Oh, wow. Okay. So that yep. summer internship. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah, um, I'm working a lot of hours. It's like 60, 70 a week. And they told us that that's easy compared to what full-time. I was like, say what? <laughs> so it was definitely very intense. It was- yeah. um, Oh, I can't wait to hear his about his experience doing that. Yeah. There's so much, Tina, what you said that resonates with my own background, right? As a child of Philippine immigrants, you know, wanting the the stable, prestigious job. But to get the stable, prestigious job, you have to go to the stable, prestigious college, the stable, prestigious high school, right? And I think, you know, Asian parents, right? The, uh, there's a large diaspora, so let me put this with an asterisk, right? Often, in my experience, I've found what that formula is, whether it's reading U.S. News or World Report, finding out from other parents, et cetera, you sort of, you follow the playbook. I guess my next question is, what got you to veer off of the playbook? Like you were at Goldman. I mean, every, I'm sure I'm sure your parents are like, Tina has found Nirvana. She's, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, she's made it. She's going to be a partner. Oh my God. <laughs> How did the pivot happen? That is so many... Interesting thing you said. I didn't even think about that. When people think or have stereotypes about Asian parenting, it's not so much like that we're geared. It's there's a playbook that works, and that's yes. what they're following. That's that's what you just said. They're like, okay, I know that works in this country. Follow this playbook. So it's you know why would you try to do something new when you're like this? This I know what the outcome for this playbook is. Yeah. When I decided to quit, I didn't even ask them about their thoughts on that idea. I told them after the fact, because I think instinctively I knew that they would, actually, I didn't really know how they'd react. But when I called them to tell them, I was like, oh, I quit Goldman Sachs. Hello? Hello? (laughs) (laughs) Like total silence. You didn't didn't hear a phone drop or anything or like some (laughs) cursing at you in your parents' native language? (laughs) I think they were too shocked about that. So I decided to leave, and I think this is probably representative of a lot of pe- in a lot of people's lives. We make hard decisions or we make decisions to change when something's not comfortable. We never do it when things are good. You know, so mm. at that time, uh, I was working on a trading desk. And when people talk about the hashtag me too stuff, I'm like, y'all don't know what it used to be like. I never experienced direct sexual hair necessarily, but it's just part of the, I'm not saying it's okay. It was just the norm. But on my desk, Mm. I felt like as the only woman, and I'll, probably I was also woman minority, not besides just being the only woman, who was being mentored in their career was not me. Um, and it's understandable. People mentor similar people. And so the head of my desk was a white British guy. And so his favorite employee or person on our desk was a white British guy. So, mm-hmm. and that's just, that's just how it is. Whether we like people are drawn to their own whatever it is they find the commonality. So I think it had gotten to a point and I was 
that I thought, all right, so when you're not in a place where you feel totally protected or safe, you wonder, it's not just like, oh, do I want to sit? That made me think of the bigger question. Do I want to stay here in my career? Mm. I'm already at the best you can be at if you're talking about investment banks, and I still think they're the best now. So would it solve the bigger picture problem if I change departments? Like, do I really want to be? So the question that posed to me is like, do I really want to be doing this? Yes. And can you know, looking around my department, I see there's a lot of people who I think of a whole, let's say a whole department of 60 people, maybe two people loved what they did. Everyone else is you got there, you're there long enough, you're making good money, you have kids or and a family, so you're kind of tied to a certain income level. To start off anywhere would be really hard financially. And I was like, I'm already young where I don't need to worry about that. And so that's actually when I decided I think I gotta go. Mm. And I actually wasn't quite sure what I was gonna do. So when I left, I was like, I, I know I wanna work for myself, but I'm not quite sure what that will be. Not the advice I would give everyone, but I quit not knowing exactly what I was going to do next. Mm. And I left on good terms. Like, you know, I didn't say, oh, you know, that was because um, I didn't feel mentors. Like, maybe it's also an Asian cultural thing where I'm, I don't usually complain about stuff like that. Mm. I was like, this is just not for me. Uh, It's not, this environment's not working. I don't see that someone's not going to be shepherding me. So I'm going to go do something else. And I knew I wanted to do something on my own. Got it. Wow. That's really powerful, Tina. It speaks so much to, I think, the conversation these days about diversity, equity, inclusion, which is not a today combo. It's been going on for as long as we know in the history of this, of this country. And you now shift to, you know, you wanted to work for yourself, but you didn't know what. Mm-hmm. How did how jewelry? Like, I don't think our listeners would necessarily <laughs> like tie Goldman Sachs, equities trader, jewelry store owner. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it, there's the behind the scenes. So I've always been very artistic and mm. also growing up like to the point where in high school, you know, when they have the, when they vote best, like most likely to succeed, to succeed blah, blah, blah. I was most artistic. So I've always been artistic. But as we know, for a lot uh. of Asian cultures, you are not going to find a job work. The parents are like, that is a hobby. To be artistic is a hobby. It is not something to do as a career because it's, it's not financially predictable or stable to be doing anything artistic. Yes, that's Which right. logically, yeah, I mean, it's like there's some truth to that. It is a harder life. So when I left prior to leaving, I had been dabbling with different kind of classes, uh, just, you know, my own free time. And I took a jewelry making class. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I like working with my hands. And I started designing little things and I would sell it here and there. So one of the ideas I had when I left is like, let me just see where that goes. And this is, and it's interesting because when I think about people say, oh, that's so brave. I was like, no, I just, for me, I had to. But I think you can only do that. It's based on your core values. So even though everyone likes money, but I think for some people, money is much more important. And I, I see anything that I do is never driven by money. So it's easier for me to to leave a job like that and to pursue something like designing jewelry because making money is not a number one core value for me. I mean, it sounds weird, like core value, like we all need money to, to live. But yeah. I think some people are like money is very important for them. Well, is that instilled in you by your parents? Like, where did you learn that core value, right? to lead up to that yeah. decision. 
I don't know, because I think a lot of immigrant, uh, especially them, they they left communist China. So for them, stability is important, right? And they don't, yes. they don't, they're not extravagant, like, like they're not hoarders, but they're borderline hoarders. You know, they don't throw Uh-oh. in them. They'll be like, Hopefully there's no video being shown here about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mom would be like, there'll be some cereal in her covers of, it's like a year expired. I'm like, mom, this is, she's like, no, leave it there. I'll eventually eat it. You know, it's just, they're different. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, so money is important, especially for them, like a stability is important. And I think this, I don't know if this is like, you're born with certain values. I think maybe it's a detriment that they always had a good life for me. So, you know, I was lucky because of their jobs. I would say that I grew up upper middle class Hmm. in the neighborhood. So in some ways, without having that adversity, maybe that's, you know, one part I've thought about that, like that, uh, even my sister didn't pick a job that was like all about money. She, she got a PhD in psychology and she's a uh, college professor which, you know, which has its benefit, but it's also, that's not something you also would pick if, you know, you're driven by money. So that's, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Like, why, why is it some people's core values? I think it's yeah. just, it's just, I think that's just might be just personality types. Because I was, you know, Todd, my partner, yeah. um, him and his brother are very different. Like Todd, like, ha- uh, chooses stability. His brother is driven by money. So, mm. uh, right. And then the family was, uh, was probably a lower middle class and there. They're not materialistic, so they're not driven. But they're driven by you know finding stability and having a, a good life, but not. All, so I think it might just be the ether. Like some people have that as a core value, and some people don't. I can buy that. <laughs> I think there are just things that we have that are inherent and coded in our DNA, and yes. you get put through a number of environments and things where you quadruple, quintuple down on those things. So yeah, let's continue the story, Tina. Sure. Jewelry store owner, owner. Oh, how, yeah, in how that Gre- happened in, in, in Greenwich Village. You're like, how did that happen? What was that experience yeah, like? It's funny how it is like life path. So I started exploring more. I was designing jewelry. I started going to different shops to wholesale my jewelry, just different places I knew. And back then, also, it was a very different time in the late 90s. People were still shopping brick and mortar. So, you know, brick and mortar had relevance back then. Yes. But I think for me, the breakthrough was at that time also, in terms of publications, people were still reading paper magazines. So I don't know how I was savvy enough to be submitting photos of my jewelry to magazines. And I had my, in that first year of starting this, I had a break where InStyle magazine had decided to shoot one of my pieces. And then they featured in this, in the one section where they just show jewelry. It's, It's just this one little section. Every issue has like the top jewelry picks from that month. So I got in that and a couple other magazines that that year. And at that time, I had met my then he was ended up being my husband, but I had met him at that time. And here he was probably a little bit more forward thinking. And he said, you need to have a website because people will shop online. I was like, what? Because back in 1999, people were not really shopping online. And that's when he's like, you need to have a website. Yeah. And at the same time, he goes, you also won't have relevance. You need to open up a store. I was like, what? A store? That felt so big and unreal for me. And maybe it's the confidence of having someone who's like, you know, who's got your back. Like, oh, you should open up a store. And he happened to be an electrician and so the construction industry. So I started looking around and I found a storefront in in the neighborhood that we lived in, which was Greenwich Village. Mm. And I went for it. 
he built it out. So that's how I opened my first store. Throughout the 10-year period that I had stores, I ended up at one point having three stores. So two in Greenwich Village and one down in Nolita on Mulberry Street. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine, (laughs) if you still held those stores? Like, I don't know if you would even want to be a guest on Ronda. He's like, Ron, I'm this uh, multi-quadrillionaire with these big jewelry (laughs) stores. Like, I'm going to talk to who? Like, what's this about? Like, you talk to my assistant first and then my assistant will vet you. Thanks. (laughs) <laughs> it was, it's was definitely a, it's an adventure opening a brick and uh, having that, but like everything, nothing, just a straight trajectory because, um, yeah. why I ended up not continuing is that in the 10th, around the 10th year is when the financial crisis, uh, before the 10th year is when the financial crisis hit and that's changed mm-hmm. the game for brick and mortar yes. for just for everything. Mm. So do you do you rewind back and say if that recession, if the recession of 08 hadn't hit, that you would still be doing that? Or like, Probably. was it that's it? Yeah. Yeah. I, so like what that did was in being in that location, I have the same UPS driver who'd come. So this is where I know. So he sees everything. So around that time, okay. he's like, all the stores in this neighborhood, they're closed. You know, the only thing that was thriving during post 2008 to 2010 were bars, you know, maybe bars and restaurants, because that's all people drink your sorrows, right? Yeah, yeah. And what's <laughs> interesting and unpredictable at that time, so between 2008 and 2010, besides post uh, financial crisis, that's when people started shopping online more. Amazon started going on the rise then. Like it, yes. it was like a, a whole perfect storm of things. So brick and mortars hit by the economy. People start shopping online at the same time. People also stop reading magazines more, like print magazines more. All of it's like it doesn't feel like a big shift when you when you're in it. But when I look at it now in the past, big stuff was happening post yeah. crisis. I also remember at the time I was working at a national ed nonprofit and. Mm-hmm. I remember starting to really see Facebook get bigger and bigger. Around that time, right? yes, so absolutely. The, ri- the big rise of like the big social media, not yes. like they're the precursors, right? You know, Friendster, MySpace, yep. may they rest in peace. But I remember when Facebook started to get big, when you said 0809, I was like, oh, wait a second. Yep. I remember I was one of the first people in my age group to move over and all my friends were like, what the hell is this? Isn't this for college kids, Ron? Why would I leave MySpace? Which is, all, I mean, can you imagine saying that to a Gen Z today? Why leave MySpace? <laughs> like, my who? What, what, yeah. what were these? It's like talking about a beeper compared to like, you know, an iPhone. It's just like, wait, that's how y'all interacted? Wait, this thing that looked very basic. Yeah. Yes, no, that you're right. Was, that was, that was hot and popping back then, right? Yeah. And I think, because um, I remember one of the college students that worked for me, had told me back then, you need to get on this thing called LinkedIn, Tina, blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, fine. Like, we'll set myself up. So LinkedIn, I think, was just starting maybe, I don't remember if it was pre-2008, but still also in those latter 2000s, latter decade before 2010, LinkedIn had started up. But you're right. Facebook, that like that was that time period. All of that stuff happening at the same time post-financial crisis. Wow. So financial crisis hits. Yep. Brick and mortar goes down. That yep. also means your jewelry store. But how did you figure out what was next? What what was what would you start? Oh with? Yeah. yeah. See again, it's like uncomfortable situation. So I think uh. I went from three stores down to one. And then I tried I gave up the store to have a counter inside the limelight, which was a mall. 
first a long time ago it was a nightclub. Then it Wait, was a mall. I can't believe I don't know this. You I, you had a counter inside the, the limelight. <laughs> yeah, but that was like less. Than, it was less than a year for that. But so, you know, when I was trying to decide what um, is this when limelight became the market. Yes. Um, yes. I was, it was limelight marketplace. So I was on the second floor. So I did that. And that was, uh, that was mm. working out. So at that time I started going, I left my, I was having a rough time, in my marriage and I left my marriage. So I was living alone. And one of the things I would do in feeling sad and lonely, was I started going to the gym and I was never a gym rat before. So I would mm. go to the gym. And I know a lot of people think, oh, divorce body or what I was like. No, it's really just because you got to get out of your head and you just go somewhere else. So I started going to the gym and I'd started taking classes. And that's where I was introduced to strength training. And I like never did strength training before. You know, it's just mm. also not part, part of the stuff that I did growing up. You know, I would take ballet and dance classes, but that's a whole specific thing. So I would take classes and I'd always be asking teachers like, wait, how do I do this? And, you know, you're just peppering the instructor with questions. And maybe around this time, I was thinking, oh, you know what? Instead of like, I'm not getting all my answers. Like, I want to learn more, but I don't know how. And also, I guess you back then, who was that? 2000, 2010, you were still not going online using stuff to look up how to do things. So that's right. I, mm-hmm. right. And then I decided, I was like, let me, I think I ended up searching for personal training courses, not because I wanted to be personal. I was like, maybe this is the only way I can really learn how to do this stuff myself. Because mm. going to actual personal trainer, I think, was, felt like it cost too much for me. So I was like, let me just pay for a course and I'll just learn it that way. And the only place around that time that I could find that felt like affordable was Equinox. They had a training institute called Equinox Fitness Training Institute. So they had, they actually had an education arm back then. It was like a one month intensive every Mm -hmm. weekend of going to learn all the basics of personal training, which to me was like, yeah. oh, let me learn how to do strength training yeah. and all that stuff. And, and for, for our audience who may not know Equinox, I mean, Tina and I do is like fitness nerds, right? To hear Equinox and affordable, I was like, <laughs> really? <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> I just know having once been in the Equinox family, I was, you know, my wife and I were pure yoga members of the Upper West Side. And it felt like, you know, taking our spleen out to pay for <laughs> the monthly it membership. Is, it, it is a little bougie. Cheap. Right. Yeah. No, I think about high like, quality, yeah. but high quality. For high sure. quality. Um, yeah. yeah. High quality. They're, they, they really educate their trainers uh, very well. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was in that intensive one month course and in retrospect, I'm like, Oh, it's a feeder. It's a feeder. I'm like, well, so smart. I didn't know that then. So you're taking it and they, you know, kind of tell you like, Hey, if you're interested in, in pursuing this as, uh, uh, also just go to your nearest Equinox, the one that, cause they, each Equinox hires on for that particular club. And so I yeah. went to one that happened to be near where I still had my jewelry office and stuff. And and that's how I started into training. I was like, let me do this as a side thing, which as we all know, you can't, doing something as a side thing, if you really want it to grow, it's really hard to just do it as a side thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you go, I applied there, they hire you, but you can't just work as a trainer part-time it's hard to build a business and, and learn. You kind of have to be in it pretty seriously. And that's how I got into fitness, working at Equinox. Wow. <laughs> I see this through line here. You know, you, 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 you picked places, right? Or you built something that was very high end, right? I mean, you have Goldman, right? You built this thriving jewelry, you know, business that 
if the pandemic hadn't hit, who knows? I never, maybe never would have met Tina Tang, right? You would have been someone I just read about in magazines or something or like in jewelry stores when my wife and I were shopping for our rings, right? I'm like, oh, we should go to Tina Tang's place and go get our diamond or engagement and like wedding bands, right? And then you go find Equinox, right? And so yeah. how did you build your personal trait? Because, you know, Equinox, mm-hmm. I think you're right. My experience really highly trained, highly knowledgeable personal trainers. And it's still, it's a doggy dog world of being a fitness personal trainer, especially in New York City. Like my my sense has always been, it is really rough to make a sustainable business in an expensive city like New York City. So walk us through that story. So they don't pay a lot. You probably get minimum wage when you're uh, there for the first year. Uh, yeah, so that's the hard oh. thing. So anyone who's interested, I remember someone was asking me, he had, he was changing careers. He has a kid and he's married. And I was like, and then you just can't. I think you either have to, if you're one of the big main breadwinners. For me, I'm not sure. Again, it may be good or bad. I didn't really think about the, the, I was like, this is something I'm interested in. I was like, I'll just figure it out. So the way uh, they pay you, it works out to minimum wage. You're doing shifts. They want you to sell in order to find the clients. They're not going to give you clients. It's not like working for some other places where like, here, train yeah. this person. And yeah. you know they teach you a lot of education about training, but also about selling. And I think that's very high turnover. So when you leave, you're like, oh, I, these are just not the... Those selling practices feel very old world, old school and not the way I don't do any of what the way they sell stuff. It's just like a formula, but it doesn't mean it's the right formula, but that's, Mm. that's the way they do it. But I think the great thing about it is even though online seems like it's very competitive there, even though it was a corporate environment, everyone that was a trainer was very supportive of each other. I think about places like there wasn't drama and I don't know, I was like, does it have to do with the management? I'm like, no, it's just everyone's kind of in it, struggling together. So they help you, like you, you mm. train with each other. You don't understand something. You ask one of your colleagues, hey, you know, teach me how to do this. Like there was a lot of that, like a lot of shared knowledge. Maybe it's just that shared suffering experience. I'm not sure. Right, right. But I wouldn't suggest for everyone, but it was a very good training ground uh, for the fitness business. And most people get to some point where like, you know, they take such a big cut out of any sessions that you just decide to go on your own. And I, I think I was there probably about three years and then I left. And then like in today's world, training in person is great. But I think, and COVID shows that, showed us too, that having an online business where you can work with people, you don't have to always be face to face for something to work because personal training is not necessarily for everyone who wants to exercise or be fit. There's other, there's a lot of other hybrid ways for people to have a coach and to be coached. It's fascinating you say that. So I just got a haircut recently and my hairstylist has always been fit and loved taking care of his body. And he works with high-end clients. And so these high-end clients are like, Hector, you should train me because he's very, he's always been passionate about fitness and going to the gym and trying different things and got his personal training cert. And certainly pre-COVID, right? I mean, he's been doing this like, it's probably 15 years, right? He would train some folks virtually, but like back then it was still very much an in-person thing, but he had the ability to train folks virtually every once in a while. Folks would travel. I mean, he, these are folks like they got bank, 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 right? And yeah. 
when COVID hit, it was interesting, right? Because it totally turned into then this virtual business. But because he built, like you, what I've always seen of you, you're such an incredible relationship builder because you're curious about people. You have, similar to me, this United Colors of Benetton group of friends. Like it's, mm-hmm. like, they're, it's like the United Nations. Like it's everybody, right? And the things they needed him for, which I, I'm going to guess similar for you, right? At some level is... It's not just the fitness coaching. It's the relationship. There's, I would, I might dare argue sometimes it's a little bit of like friend slash therapist is yeah, what oh, I heard, yeah. right? Yeah. It's this really funky dynamic of like, yeah, I'm working out with you, Hector. And I like hanging out with you. And I'm just like, wait, what kind of, it's such a different thing. It's like when you have that much money, the amount of things that you bring people, I'm like, it's like, and then I started thinking about, you know, that's what I want for me. Maybe not tomorrow, but like, I'm going to put this in the Ronderings energy and universe. I'm going to be one of those folks. I'm just like, oh yeah, I've got this whole army of incredible people around me that are supporting me. And some of whom I'm paying out of pocket for some of these things that I know are going to make me better. So yeah, yeah. I'm curious, like from leaving Equinox to going out on your own, what, what did, because there's this theme for you, Tina, of like figuring it out. How did you figure that out? Because going out on your own... That must have been and a personal trainer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, what was that figuring it out like? Oh gosh. So I guess um, you have maybe some people that you continue training that you might have known from there. Right. I, I don't think I've really come into my stride until until really more recently, till around COVID, where yeah. I, pre-COVID I started wanting to go more online, like coaching people online. Oh, and for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it's it's not necessarily how you think of traditional personal training where I'm standing next to you telling you what to do and watching your form. So coaching online could mean someone doesn't need that live, let me stare at you attention, but like, listen, I want someone to, to kind of keep me accountable. I want to do this in terms of fitness. I don't want to waste time of me trying to figure it out and Googling all these exercises. I'd like someone else to know what I want to do, plan it out for me and not necessarily just be like, here, here it is, but to be checking in and have someone to be like, okay, it's starting to feel like this, or I'm hitting these weights, you know, and who constantly is helping you progress but not in that, like, let me hold your hand the entire time. So some people are a lot more self-guided where they're like, I can do it. I want someone else to just create the plan for me. And then also check in with me to make sure I'm following the plan and make any adjustments I need. So it's more, I think when you hear about online coaching in terms of fitness, that's what that'd be like. Even with nutrition, when people, uh, I was like my fitness partner, a business partner in fitness, she does a lot of nutrition coaching, which is not telling people you got to eat this, this, and it hit this and hit this calories. It's a little bit more mindset. So when she has phone calls with her clients, it's to talk about like, kind of like what's been happening in the past couple of weeks, how you're thinking about your food. Like you have, we all know the general guidelines, like you should have a protein that's the size of your palm, you know, like two handfuls of vegetables, maybe only one handful of a carb. So mm-hmm. those, all those, all that information is online. Like anything we, I think most things we want to know about our health or nutrition, there's no secrets. It's, it's online, but yeah, what we need sometimes is someone to help us with our mindset about it, about someone who feels like, okay, someone cares if I don't do this or even, and honestly, like when we pay somebody for something, we're more likely to do it. Cause you're like, I just spent that money on that. Most of us will try not to waste the money that we spent 
Yeah. Like I've paid for business coaches because it's helpful also to have like an objective outside view. And I think that's actually helped me in terms of growing as a fitness professional is actually hiring coaches myself. Isn't it? I mean, there seems to be this through line, which I, I don't know if I thought about it, right? In terms of the arc of people I'm interviewing, but as I'm thinking about everyone that I've, I, I have interviewed, I am interviewing, will interview, you're all amazing fucking coaches. So some of it is like, remember you talked about like in a very biased and very bad implications of your white British manager wanting to mentor someone who looked like him. Mm -hmm. We do have a tendency to want to bring people close to us who we are like. Like yeah. I see myself very deeply as a coach. Like I mm -hmm. love doing that and so do you, right? So Tina, like what's your magic? Like you've been through all these things. I bet you, even though I'm not gonna dive into it here, you probably were an amazing coach on the equity trading floor. I'm sure you were an amazing coach when you were advising clients on what jewelry to wear. Certainly when people think of coaching personal trainer, right? You, I've seen you in action. It happened, it happened today. It's happened, you know, for all the time I've known you at IPA. You're just, what? what's Tina's formula? What's Tina's way of being mindset around being at this coach that people trust you get results with? So I don't know if that's a, uh, I'm a people pleaser. So part of it, hmm. I think is seeing, like today at the, uh, in our powerlifting mock meet, I've seen all of you when you're training during class. So I kind of can see the, what's the word? Someone's emotional mindset. So I was thinking about one lifter, how she's, we all have backstories that are not necessarily, that we don't necessarily know, but maybe yes. as a coach, you're trying to figure out. So it's not just like, go in, do your job. You're like, oh, this person might, she feels very self-conscious about her body. You know what I mean? It's trying to figure out what it is that where that person gets hung up in. And I think in, and even having that for ourselves, maybe this is why it's uh, easy to coach people or you're we're drawn to certain times like, oh, I get that mindset. Okay, what yeah. will help her to like get past herself, you know, not be in her own way. And I think you can't really fake the caring because you you also like you care a lot about people. And so yeah, I, I was like, can you teach? I think it has to be kind of innate like that that really brings you joy to see someone succeed and do well. Yeah. So we're going to rewind in your past. Mm-hmm. Talked about this idea of people pleasing. That's something that resonates with me because I think at my core, shocker, shocker, I'm also a people pleaser. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Is there a particular moment in your life that you knew that you were a people pleaser that comes to mind? Because I, I think we talked about this being innate, but I often think mm -hmm. in the arc of values that we know that we've had, there's a moment where I'm like, oh, that's when I knew I was that. There's something like that that comes to mind, like. I can't think of there is a specific, I feel, uh, but I think, I feel like it relates to our upbringing. Maybe it's even cultural. I, I don't mm, know. Okay. Or our role in our family. Okay. Yeah, that's another thing. It's like innate. some people are people pleasers, some people are not. See, that's interesting because for you, um, you're very, I think a lot of people admire how you are unashamed of being yourself. And so sometimes you don't think of that hand in hand with people pleasing. But also, I know one thing about you is you don't judge and you're not cruel to people. Like, even though that sounds like, oh, nobody should be judged. I was like, but in reality, we know some people judge and some people are, are cruel. And you're not either of that. So even though you're, you're unabashedly yourself, you're also not 
arrogant. Does that make sense? It's a very, let me tell you, Tina, I, I thread the needle with that all the time because I think you and I have talked about it, right? Like, I'll call it what it is. I believe there are people where we work out who are like, oh, you are a cocky son of a fucking bitch. <laughs> I just know it. Like, I'm not stupid. I feel it. I'm not, I'm attuned. And yet at the same time, I just know like, I'd like to think you get workout wrong when I'm in the workout. Yeah, you get that cocky son of a bitch. But you, when I'm not doing that, you get generous, kind. Yes. I don't know how to be, you know what I'm saying? Like yes. it's- that's you You nailed it. Yes. It's, it's a means to an end. And it's hard, right? Because I, I do know in like society, right? I think some of this is like tied up in our identity, right? I don't know. This is a wondering more than Liz is not iPad. This is life, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, that Asian guy acting like that, like I haven't been taught to see that. Maybe I don't know Asian men who are that confident and cocky, but damn, that guy is in this environment. Who does he think he is? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is that about, right? Mm -hmm. Is it mean he doesn't think I'm that? I'm like, no, I could honestly the workout care less. (laughs) I'm not. Yeah, I think that's so admirable. That's not, it's not easy to be unabashedly like, hey, you know, feel really good about what you're doing yourself, but not at the, not at the expense of another person. So that's why I was like, oh, it's interesting. Like how you're like, I'm a people pleaser, but I'm also not, because sometimes we associate people pleasing with uh, like an insecurity, like, you know, wanting to be like, but like, you're like, I'm me, but I also care about people. Like I want you to succeed. And that takes a lot of like maturity discipline. I'm sure that, you know, we can riff for another episode about all the lessons we learned to to deepen that foundation of like this balance between people pleasing because people mm-hmm. pleasing gone amok means that people step all over you, right? You don't yeah. want to be that kind of people pleaser. Like it's a, like, how do you, it's like this holding people accountable, right? Yes. Yeah. So Tina, I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about what you're doing today. And I know about it because I follow you on Instagram and Ronderings fam. If you don't follow Tina on Instagram, it is a masterclass on social media branding. I And Tina, you know this about me. I do not say that fucking lightly because I see a lot of doo-doo, gaga, <laughs> with people posting stuff. And yours, it's thoughtful, it's crisp, it's authentic, it's informational, it's you. It's like, if I could mold Tina into social media content, what you put out in your Iron Strong Fit is... It's wonderful. It, it it's authentically used. I just wanted to like share that with our audience and give you the opportunity to talk about what's Tina doing today. Oh, thank you. I mean, uh, it took a while to get to that point to be able to post. So, uh, so I I spend a lot of time focusing on what I post on there, and it's really to inform. Like I said, I focus a lot on women over forty, and it's the things that I wish I was taught or knew about my body, whether mm. that's related to strength training or just. Yes my general health. So I try to create very specific topics like what are ways that estrogen affects our body? Because I don't, I didn't think about it at all until I went Mm. through menopause. And you're like, what? My mom didn't even (laughs) talk about it. I had to ask her at age 50, like, mom, when did you go to through menopause? Because I started, you know, having all these symptoms. She's like, oh, Uh, she had to look it up. She's like 50. I'm like, how come I didn't even know any of this? And I think it's because in, in today's world, you know, world, or actually in the past, it's just not something people want to talk about. It feels embarrassing talking about all mm-hmm. the weird stuff that happens to yes. a woman's body because yes. it's a sign of, or maybe they think of it as a sign of decline, decline of sexuality or whatever, loss of a woman's societal power, which is her sexuality. So yes. 
um, you know, I, I want to empower people with the knowledge and that, you know, things don't have to end or, or be bad. Uh, it's just a, tr- it's a transitional phase. So that's, that's where the, a lot of the content is. And I try to be blunt about stuff that, that we go through uh, in this period of time and post-menopause. Yeah. What I love so much about your content and what you're telling is that you've lived through that experience and are sharing it from such an authentic, because you went through it. It's just mm-hmm. like what you just said, like, if I could rewind to the past, these are the things I would say. And be able to like get straight to the point, right? Because I think there's something brilliant about your content, right? Where it shows that this is not just even American context, but I'll I'll, I'll zoom in on American context here, right? The control that our government and our society wants over women's bodies. And it's not just abortion, it's a whole host of other things, right? And I think a lot of what your content says for women over 40 to reclaim your body is to reclaim your identity, to reclaim your power. You, y'all, women are dope. I love that. Like, right? That was a great um, tagline. <laughs> okay. You really have to pay me for that, Tina. <laughs> I, I, there's something really powerful about what you do. And I don't look like that's the message that I get when I read your content. I'm just like, oh. There's something to it here, right? I'm sure that it, it's when you became, you know, in our local Jersey City, Hoboken, you know, like celebrities, right? You were chosen as the best personal trainer in Jersey City. And I can't imagine that that would have happened without your social media prowess and the relationships you have with people. Like, it's just like, people just love you so much. Like, why would they not vote for Tina? That's all right. I Thank thought you. about it, right? It's really, I was like, and- Truth be told, it's like the, the way that you train is so powerful. Like you, you, you have really strong technical knowledge. You're always learning. If you don't know something in the moment, you're not afraid to say, I don't know it right now, but I am going to figure it out. I've seen your growth as a trainer myself, as someone who's like technically not an IPA trainer, but I, I kind of have always felt that y'all treat me as one, even though I don't do, I don't frankly at the time. <laughs> That's what I'm just, sorry for But like, you know what I'm saying? Like I've seen just, how deep your knowledge and your practitioner people watch you and you're just so warm and generous. Like, I just think that's what people, like you're the model. And if Josh, when you listen to this, like Tina is your model trainer. I I, I know that. I would hope everybody who goes to IPA knows that. Like you are, I watch it. I think other trainers, even if they're not telling you, have followed your example because I watch it. I've told you, I've watched this in class. Like, oh, they're doing the Tina script. I say, I game recognized game. That's good. <laughs> that up everybody's game. Like, good. <laughs> Thank you. So Tina, we're going to end with, of course, the question I ask of all of my Ronderings guests. What's your Rondering? What story, what lesson do you want to share with the audience? It's going to be very uh, specific to my life. What's been, So I think it's important to not necessarily find your passion, but follow your curiosities. And it doesn't have to be a heavy curiosity, like, oh my God, I've always wanted to learn how to do a bonsai plant, or, you know, cut bonsai, but like, oh, I'm <laughs> curious about that. Try a class, see how it goes. Like you, you just never know, not that you're going to change your career, but your curiosity is always something that changes over your life. And also that you, allows you to discover different interests or, or strengths of yours as you're changing through life. You just came up with the title for this episode, Tina. So something, if I, I probably have said this in other episodes, I 
don't know what the title of any of these episodes are because I don't want to be like Tina Tang, Iron Strong, blah, 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 blah. <sighs> Not to say your name is boring, but it's just like, it's not a hook. When I heard follow your curiosity and then changing, this will be called follow your changing curiosity. Ooh, that seems I like to that. be the arc of what has allowed you to sustain, to shape shift, to continue mm-hmm. to iterate as a different Tina Tang in all of these different career moments. So I just wanted to thank you for being a guest. I want to thank you for being you. I want to thank you for just being an incredible coach at IPA where I, I learn from you twice a week. I am a thousand bazillion percent sure our audience is going to hear these snippets and follow their changing curiosity. So I thank you, it. Tina. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Ron. Awesome. Take care. Ron Dering's fam. Peace out. Isn't it incredible when your podcast guest comes up with the title of your podcast with their rendering? Follow your changing curiosity. And I knew intuitively that Tina would come up with that because one of the main reasons I wanted her as a guest of the podcast is because of how she's been able to navigate her career and her life. And because she just has a deep curiosity to try things, to keep learning, to keep growing. I thought it'd be a really powerful example for our audience to learn from Tina. So I learned a ton from her. I learned a ton from her, especially with her social media presence and how she's an entrepreneur. And most of all, just how deeply respectful and humane she is. I enjoyed this episode. Keep listening to Rotherings, y'all. Peace.